Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy. News that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective, and our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, a federal court ruling protects the rights of churches and Christian ministries to hire and fire staff members based on religious beliefs. And we take a look at how money given to tax-exempt organizations, including some Christian organizations, is ending up in the hands of partisan political organizations. We begin today with what appears to be a body blow to a group that claims to be the oldest Protestant denomination in the United States. Yeah, on New Year's Day, 43 congregations of the Reformed Church in America split from that national denomination, in part over theological differences regarding same-sex marriage and the ordination of LGBTQ clergy. The departure of these theologically conservative congregations to form a new group, the Alliance of Reformed Churches, leaves some who remain in the RCA concerned about the denomination's survival. Before the split, the nearly 400-year-old denomination had about 200,000 members and 1,000 churches. Now, 43 congregations doesn't sound like a lot compared to the 1,000 or so congregations in this denomination. Are you sure you're not overstating this impact? Well, I don't think so. Uh, For one thing, those 43 represent the largest and most vibrant churches in this denomination. And I should also add that these are just the first 43 to join. At least 125 other congregations are currently in conversations with ARC leaders about joining. So what will be different about this new denomination? Well, first of all, the main difference will be that the new denomination will not affirm same-sex marriage or the ordination of LGBTQ clergy. Uh, They'll also have an emphasis on church planting and feature what they call a flexible organizational model that's meant to foster theological alignment and more efficient decision-making, at least according to ARC leaders. Other conservative-leaning churches in the RCA, as I mentioned, are considering ARC, but even more interesting to me, ARC leaders say that they're also in conversation with those in the Presbyterian Church in Canada, the Christian Reformed Church in North America, and this is where it gets particularly interesting, the Presbyterian Church in America, which is also a conservative Reformed denomination. They're also trying to discern, at least some of those congregations, whether they should join ARC as well. Warren, I know you've been following these kinds of splits and alliances for decades. Do you have any thoughts about this specifically? Yeah, I do. A couple. Uh, First of all, this split is not a surprise. The denomination voted that it would amicably split back in October. But even before that vote, this denomination has been in decline for 
decades, uh, largely because liberal and progressive theology has taken over most of the churches in that denomination. So this is yet one more example of how those who say they favor tolerance and inclusion end up driving people away from a denomination, destroying the institution that they are a part of. It's happened in the Episcopal Church, in the United Churches of Christ, in the United Methodist Church, and now we see it in the Reformed Church in America. Tolerance and inclusion turned these denominations into into small, and here's the irony, mostly affluent, mostly white denominations with very little diversity of thought, ethnicity, or race, just the opposite of what they claim they want. Now, that's not to say that the new ARC denomination will have an easy time of it. Uh, It's often easier to know what you stand against rather than what you stand for, and they're going to have to figure that out pretty quickly if they want to thrive and grow. That said, the progressives in the RCA had become so progressive that some were denying core Christian doctrines, and when that happens, you know it's time to go. Our next story involves a court ruling not about an evangelical ministry, but about the Catholic Church. But it has some important implications for all religious organizations. Yeah, it sure does. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago has ruled in favor of a Catholic church that was sued by a former employee. The court said in really no uncertain terms that churches and religious groups have the right to hire and supervise staff according to their beliefs without government intrusion. St. Andrew the Apostle Parish in Calumet City, Illinois, is part of the Archdiocese of Chicago. In Demkovich versus St. Andrew the Apostle Parish, a case filed in the U.S. District Court of Northern Illinois in 2017, Sander Demkovich, a former music director at St. Andrew's, had sued the church after he was terminated for having a same-sex personal relationship. Demkovich was hired in 2012 as the church's musical director, choir director, and organist, serving until he was fired in September of 2014. Yeah, Demkovich alleged in the suit that the Reverend Jacek Dada, a Catholic priest and the church's pastor, discriminated against him because of his sexual orientation by asking for the music director's recommendation, resignation rather, after Demkovich married his partner in September of 2014. Dada had told Demkovich that he needed to resign because gay marriage was against the teachings of the church, and he fired him when he refused to do so. Warren, let's look at one more story before we go to a break, and that's a story coming out of the Anglican Church in North America. Yeah, more than 350 people have signed a petition calling for the Anglican Church in North America to honor abuse survivors' wishes regarding an investigation into the handling of abuse allegations within that denomination. The petition was published on Thursday of January the 6th, that's last Thursday, by the Abuse Prevention Advocacy Group, hashtag ACNA2. And it asks ACNA to hire an investigative firm that will search for and publish all the truth, even if it shows the province in an unflattering light, following the best practices of a survivor-centric investigation. 
Several individuals have reported being sexually abused by Mark Rivera, a former lay minister in ACNA's upper Midwest diocese. They, they also say leaders in the diocese repeatedly mishandled their allegations. Yeah, and in August of last year, Agna uh, announced an eight-member provincial response team to oversee an investigation into uh, the upper Midwest diocese handling of those abuse allegations that you just mentioned, Natasha. But survivors say that even this process has not gone well, and that's why they issued this petition. They're calling for an outside firm to take over. The petition requests ACNA hire a firm that will commit to several important measures, including the waiving of attorney-client privilege, using trauma-sensitive interviewing practices, assuring the anonymity of victims, uh, examining systemic contributions of abuse, and making the final report available to victims and the public. It also asked that the selected firm commit to not representing ACNA in any future possible civil litigation. Warren, we need to take a break, but when we return, a couple of stories about pastors behaving badly and one story of a church behaving well by welcoming Pakistani refugees who had no other place to go. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, a Tennessee megachurch pastor has announced a short sabbatical amid accusations of an affair, and the short length of the sabbatical has caused a significant number of the church's staff to quit. Yeah, mega church pastor uh, Tavner Smith, uh, he pastors a church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, said that he's taking a month-long sabbatical to spend some time with God, those are his words, and to get counseling after several staff members quit his church amid allegations that he was having an affair with an employee. Smith leads Venue Church in Chattanooga, and he said in an Instagram post last week that he would be back in February after taking time out to fill up so he could come back rested, refreshed, and ready for the rest of the year. One month away after some of these serious allegations that have been made against him doesn't really seem like a lot of time. No, it's not. And at least eight church employees quit the week before Christmas after confronting Tavner Smith and not being satisfied with the results. 
What exactly is the issue here? Well, first, Smith and his wife, Danielle, are going through a divorce. Divorce proceedings, in fact, began way back in May of last year, and they are still ongoing. At least as of today, they're still married. Uh, Secondly, and this was the event that precipitated the recent round of resignations, a video surfaced allegedly showing the pastor kissing another woman, a woman who is not his wife. That was reported in the Chattanooga Times uh, Free Press, and the video is part of that story and has been circulating online. And these two episodes are not the only ones that have called into question Tavner Smith's fitness for leadership. Yeah, that's right. Over the past month, several other staff and church members have come forward with stories of emotional abuse and in one case, even physical abuse by a staff member of that church that, not by Tavner, I want to make clear, but uh Tavner Smith didn't deal with it in what they considered to be an appropriate way. A spokesperson for Venue Church told the Times Free Press that the church would not comment until the departing staff members, some of whom had signed non-disclosure agreements, went through their exit process. Now, Ministry Watch has gone on record as being opposed to non-disclosure agreements in a ministry and church environment. Well, we have, and that alone it should be uh, something of a red flag for um, people looking at the story. It certainly was for me. The fact that Tavner Smith has been going through a divorce since last May, but has continued in his role in, as a pastor, is also uh, problematic. Now, listen, the Bible allows for divorce in certain situations, and I want our listeners to understand that I am not saying that divorce should be an automatic and permanent disqualifier for ministry. I don't think that that's a biblical position. But the Bible also says that God hates divorce, and it sets forth in several places in Scripture uh, what a church leader his character, his behavior should be like. Now, whatever else you want to say about this issue, it is a symptom of a serious relational breakdown. I think we can mostly all agree on that. And even if Tavner Smith is a victim in this situation, and by the way, that video of him kissing another woman, a woman who's not his wife while still married, makes it hard to make that case, it should have been an indication that he needed a long break from ministry to deal with these family and other relational issues. And that, I should add, is why we wanted to cover the story here at Ministry Watch. I know a lot of people have an allergy to these kinds of stories. In fact, I kind of do too. Uh, But those of us in the evangelical movement, especially those of us in leadership, have looked away from these kinds of stories for so long that this kind of sordid behavior has become normalized even in the church. And that normalization has had enormously corrosive impacts on the church and our witness in the world. So we decided to report this story and other stories like it because we think being honest about them is the first step toward restoration and reformation. Now, our next story fits into that category as well. Yeah, unfortunately it does. A Western Pennsylvania pastor will serve up to two years in prison after pleading guilty to charges of possession of child pornography and related offenses. Jody Sambrick is that former pastor's name. He's 61 years old. He'll serve one to two years in prison, plus eight years of probation on the charges, which were originally filed back in 2018. At the time of his arrest, Sambrick was a pastor of Hopeland University. United Methodist Church in Leiditz, Pennsylvania. 
Now, how this case came to be prosecuted is an interesting story itself. Well, it sure is. Uh, I'm guessing that a lot of our listeners have never heard of an organization called the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. But it is a federally funded program that links together small, often small local law enforcement uh, areas around the country, local police departments, in other words, uh, with technical capabilities that allow them to make and prosecute such cases. So, for example, in in this case, the West Lamperter Police Department received a tip from the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. Uh, police then executed a search warrant at Sam Brick's home and seized his computers. Then a forensic examination of the computers found numerous images and videos depicting child pornography, and that's what led to the felony charges. Wow. Well, Warren, before the break, we promised a positive story, and that's the story that we have next. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when U.S. troops left Afghanistan last year, it focused the world's attention on many desperate Christians in Afghanistan and Pakistan trying to get out of those countries. Tens of millions of dollars were raised for airlifts that may or may not uh, have actually taken place. But a lot of local churches around the country mobilized in a lot of less spectacular ways. Yeah, they sure did. One of those uh, churches is Eastbrook Church, a multi-ethnic congregation near the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Uh, Eastbrook has long had an outreach to international students on that campus, but it has now become a place where refugees, immigrants, and international students as well are coming together and are become welcome. Uh, there's a lot to this story that we can't fully explore here, but the story of Eastbrook Church is uh, one of those stories that, you know, I think is really great to learn about because it might be something that we could replicate in other communities around the country as well. So I really recommend checking out that, that story. It's on the front page of the website. Our next story hits pretty close for me, uh, close to home for me here in Colorado. It involves the devastating fire that burned hundreds of homes near Boulder a couple weeks ago. Yeah, authorities are now looking at a Christian sect called 12 Tribes because of the possibility that that fire may have started on their property. Fanned by 100 mile per hour winds, the fire destroyed more than 900 homes and it forced the evacuation of 35,000 people. Yeah, it was horrible. Made national news even here in Charlotte. Uh, one local resident posted videos showing a fire that he said started on the 12 tribes property that very day. What can you tell us about the 12 tribes? Well, it's one of those few groups that um, that is still surviving that came out of the Jesus movement of the 1960s and 70s. They pattern their work after the Old and New Testaments with an emphasis on modeling communal lifestyles and behaviors, sort of like the first century church from the book of Acts. They take on Hebrew names when they join the group. They share everything in common. They live together in homes and on farms. They homeschool their children, and they mostly keep to themselves. Now, I will say that some of the 12 tribes members do make a living sort of outside the commune. Um, they own and manage a couple of restaurants. One of them is in Boulder, and that, of course, is you know why they own property up there. One of them is in Manitou Springs, which is right outside of Colorado Springs. They operate the Mate Factor 
cafe. Now, I've been in that coffee shop many times on my trips to Manitou Springs because I'm a regular speaker at Summit Ministries, and which is also right there in Manitou Springs. And Natasha, I know you've worked at Summit as well. Uh, you probably know that place pretty well. I do. I, I actually love going by their Mate Factor. It's, uh, they, they serve a lot of little home goods and um, delicious tea, but their their community is interesting. I've heard a lot of different stories. Um, yep. but, but to be clear, the investigation is still going on. So authorities have not identified a cause for the fire yet. Yeah, that's right. But these accusations have brought a lot of attention to this group, which uh, uh, has often just sort of flown under the radar, even there locally in the Colorado Springs area, though the Colorado Springs Gazette did do a pretty in-depth um, investigation into them back a few years ago. Now, only time will tell whether this attention ends up being good news or bad news for 12 tribes. Our next story is about how some tax-exempt organizations have become ways to funnel money to political causes. Yeah. Now, Uncle Sam grants Americans tax deductions for charitable giving. I think most of us know that. But the government prohibits deductions if you make a donation to a political group. But a growing number of donors on both the left and the right are getting around that restriction. How are they doing that? Well, it works like this. First, you donate money to a qualified tax-exempt organization, so you can take the write-off. You receive the tax deduction, but then that nonprofit, or some some cases a foundation, uh, will give some or all of that donated money themselves to a political group that isn't qualified for tax-exempt donations. I thought that nonprofits were also restricted from the amount of money they could spend on advocacy. Well, yes and no. There is a very clear limit on the amount of money that tax-exempt organizations can spend on lobbying activities. But lobbying is defined fairly narrowly for this purpose, not on advocacy in general. So, for example, a nonprofit organization can claim to be bipartisan voter registration organization. But, in fact, it might target those who are likely to vote either Republican or Democratic. So there's really no way to restrict that kind of activity. And that's what has happened? Well, it has, and it's gotten uh, a whole lot, uh, I, don't want to, I don't know if you want to say worse, or let's just say more common in the last few years. Uh, the amount of money involved now is enormous. The Chronicle of Philanthropy said in a recent article that $1 billion in gifts went to tax-exempt organizations in 2020 that were actually political advocacy groups. And that's just on the liberal side of the House, from people like Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, and Bill and Melinda Gates. Can you give me an example? Well, yeah, uh, the people that I mentioned above uh, gave money to an organization called the New Venture Fund. Um, the New Venture Fund then passed on significant sums of money to progressive political advocacy groups that can't accept charitable gifts. Um, for example, $86 million to a group called the 1630 Fund, which does do some legitimate educational work about the Supreme Court, but it was also involved in partisan advocacy opposing Donald Trump's three Supreme Court appointees. $44 million went to an organization called America Votes, which rallies progressive voters to the polls. But you say that conservatives are doing this too. 
Well, they are. Uh, you have organizations like My Faith Votes, which we've written about here at Ministry Watch. Uh, the Koch Foundation and the Americans for Prosperity funneled more than $100 million to conservative political advocacy groups and causes in any given year. The National Christian Foundation, which is the largest Christian charity in the world with more than $5 billion in assets, received about $2.5 billion in donations in 2020 alone and distributed about $1.3 billion in grants. The NCF, some of that money went to conservative advocacy groups um, that claim Democrats seek to create one-party control or question the efficacy of the COVID vaccine, other causes that you wouldn't necessarily think would be in the purview of the National Christian Foundation's uh, world. So what's the solution to this problem? Or maybe I should back up and ask, is this a problem at all? Well, those are both good questions. Now, the Supreme Court has consistently ruled that while money is not speech, there's an old saying going around that money is speech. That's not strictly true, but it does have the ability to amplify speech, and laws restricting the use of money in political environments have been hard to pass and then once passed to make stick. That's why there have been so many problems getting campaign finance reform laws passed, for example. But as our country has grown bigger and richer and more diverse, the amount of money going into political causes has become enormous, and it has also had a corrosive impact on democracy, as most experts on both the left and the right would agree. I think the right answer here, Natasha, is not to add regulations to political speech or the money that fuels it, but rather to require greater transparency. Donors should ask, where's the money going? And journalists, by the way, should be asking the same thing. Warren, we're going to take another break. When we return our weekly lightning round of ministry news, I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith. You're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, we like to use this last little segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What's up first? Well, what's up first is the Point Church, a prominent multi-site church near Raleigh, North Carolina, announced this past week that it would be moving away from the multi-site model, and that its lead pastor, Chris Hankins, would be transitioning out of the role of lead pastor into what they're calling a lead missionary role, which will be a part-time role. In a letter to the church, Hankins said, 
I have become overwhelmed with the with doing tasks that are outside of the specific calling God has placed on my life. I have been increasingly consumed with administrative uh, with the administrative side of church governance and trying to keep our large and complicated church organized, aligned, and running properly. I get that this is an important local story, but what caught your attention? Well, several things. First, the fact that Hankins said he believed the new role would allow him to be much closer to God's calling on his life, uh, which would be to allow him to champion church pastors rather than be their supervisor. Well, that shows a level of self-awareness that not a lot of ambitious megachurch pastors have. And I commend him for that, even though I should also acknowledge that there's been a lot of staff resignations at that church. And while Hankins eventually got to the right answer, it looks like here, it was not without some pain and a little bit of pushing on the part of both of current and former staff members at that church. And this is also another example that some churches that have experimented with the multi-site model for church growth have found it wanting and are kind of going back to the old ways. Late last year, we reported on the Village Church in Dallas that had also abandoned this model. I can say that for a lot of reasons, I think the multi-site model is flawed and has led to a lot of problems with transparency and accountability in megachurches. So I, for one, am glad to see another church abandoning the multi-site model. And we note the death of another pastor to COVID-19. Yeah, Maranatha Chapel in San Diego held services uh, this past weekend to honor their senior pastor, Ray Bentley, who died from complications of COVID-19. Ray Bentley, who has uh, hosted the daily worldwide Maranatha radio show, founded Maranatha Chapel in 1984 uh, when he taught a midweek Bible study at a recreation center for about 30 people. That Bible study grew dramatically, and Maranatha Chapel is now a non-denominational evangelical church that has 7,000 people in weekly attendance. And who is in Christina Darnell's Ministries Making a Difference column? Well, a couple I want to feature. Open Door Mission is a gospel rescue mission in Omaha. They celebrated the graduation of Fort men and women this past week from their New Life program. I wanted to mention them because we've started adding gospel rescue missions to the Ministry 1000 database, and this organization kind of gave me an opportunity to highlight that fact. So if you've got a gospel rescue mission in your city, go to the Ministry Watch 1000 database and check them out, see what their finances are. And by the way, I recommend that you support these ministries on the local level. And the other story is also kind of interesting. The Nola Chucky Baptist Association Disaster Relief in group in Tennessee has added a drone to its team of volunteers. Brandon Ramsey serves as the primary drone pilot. It's a role that he thinks is the first of its kind, at least, and, and not only does he think that, but the Southern Baptist Disaster Relief National Director Sam Porter said so as well. Ramsey is just 18 years old, but under his direction, the dr- drone has been used to help in search and rescue efforts and locating the sources of flooding in places like Waverly, Tennessee, where which had really awful flooding last year year, and to give responders a view into dangerous terrain so that they can kind of pick the best way forward. Porter said that he hopes to see more disaster relief teams using drones and drone pilots in the future. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? 
Well, yeah, I do. Uh, I haven't mentioned uh, before that Christina's Ministries Making a Difference column is made up mostly of information that we get from our readers and listeners. They send us news tips, press releases, emails, links, and Christina chases down the details and turns them into sort of a coherent form for our website. And that's how we get a lot of our other stories as well. So, for example, in this week's podcast, you might remember I mentioned the Point Church a few minutes ago. That story originated as a tip from some of our readers. So if you have a story you'd like for us to cover or a ministry that you think needs a closer look or maybe even a little promotion, please send us an email. Our email address is info at ministrywatch.com. That will come directly to my desk, and we'll take it from there. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Ben Warwick. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Ann Stike, Bob Smitanya, Alejandra Molina, Steve Raby, Catherine Post, Christina Darnell, and you, Warren. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.